the hard-hitting first question that I have for you, being that you work at EF, an international education company, with a my my understanding and emphasis on language, how do you say gravel in Icelandic? Oh God, I don't even know. <laughs> I have I have I have Google translated or translate It is it is mole M O L with the two dots above the mol. O. Okay. M. Mole. That's about, that's about all I got. Um, I, can, I can tell you what it is in Swedish. Well, that was going to be my next question. It was going to relate to Sweden. What is it in Swedish? Gryvs. <laughs> Excuse me, one more time. Gryvs. Okay. How do you spell that? Hey there, folks. Welcome back to another great King of the Ride podcast. Ted King here on the mic and your host here on the show. I am very excited about today's guest as this is a great one. Edward Holt, the CEO of Education First North America, the company that is not just the title sponsor, but the outright owners of what we will call America's cycling team, eponymously EF, Education First. The the so-called biggest company that you've never heard of, EF, is an organization that's doing incredible things with international travel, with cultural immersion, with the the learning of a second or third or more language, and so many other super cool things in that field, as well as being the saving grace for cycling. You will likely remember that EF came on board in the 11th hour of the Slipstream team nearly folding ordeal a little over a year ago. And what's fascinating about the company and how that all went down is they didn't just come on board by generously cutting a check. They outright bought the team setting an entirely new paradigm for cycling. This is incredible what they've done. Edward, or Eddie, as he goes amongst friends, Eddie and I chat about the politics of contemporary cycling. We're going to talk about the speed bumps they've experienced in owning a world tour cycling team. We'll talk about Eddie's upbringing, his studies, his background that has placed him in the role of this very powerful organization today. He has this incredible and peaceful demeanor amid how he carries it all out. We'll talk professional road racing, and we're going to talk gravel. As this conversation takes place on the eve of this summer's The Rift gravel race that the two of us tackled right there in Iceland. Plus, we're going to talk about the direction he thinks the general sport of cycling is on the trajectory to go. Folks, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know that you will too. So speaking of some vast international things, I am very proud of the work that my friend fellow cyclist, and fellow Middlebury alum, Farid Nouri, has accomplished in his goals to seek the first Olympic bid in the sport of mountain biking from his home country of Afghanistan. Moreover, I'm even more impressed by the work that he's done in creating Mountain Bike Afghanistan. This is a group that's empowering youth amid a very war-torn country. I'm tremendously proud to be on the board of this organization, and I could talk at length about what it's all about, but I think some images, some words by Fareed, and a video are going to do so much more to explain it. So for more, please look at the show notes below. In particular, I want to point out the recent Hindukush challenge. Seriously now, take a minute to check out the links in the show notes on this topic, especially the video from the second annual event. Suffice it to say, it put things into perspective for me. I suffered a bit of a mechanical in yesterday's super cool literally and figuratively, Iceman Cometh up in way northern Michigan. I was bumming out, jogging there on the side of the trail with my bike, and man, 
I had a blast, especially after the fact, catching up with friends from the road, cross, and mountain bike world at this, this typical end-of-the-season event. But my point being, these scenes from the mountain biking that goes down in Afghanistan, it put it all into perspective. It is truly an honor to be part of this ride with Farid. Lastly, it's the off-season. It's the season of indulging in culinary delicacies. Now, I consider myself something of a nutritional minimalist, and by that I mean I like real foods. That's how I preferred to operate when I raced and trained, and that's how I operate now with life these days on the go virtually all of the time. There's nothing simpler than to work with the feed. They are an online source for all of your nutritional needs. You can even talk to a specialist to find out what will work for you particularly well. Do you need more maple syrup in your life? Yes, the answer is of course yes. Yes, they carry untapped. Or nut butters, or keto esters, or any sort of sports nutrition, the feed is going to be your source. Head over to thefeed.com slash king to save 15% on a box curated by yours truly. Or use the code king, K-I-N-G-1-0, king10, to save 10% on everything else store-wide. My friends... That's all for now. Next up, please enjoy this conversation with Eddie Halt. Very good, very good. Are there, um, do you think there's many linguistic ties between the Swedish and Icelandic? What I know about Icelandic culture could basically fill in thimble. This is certainly not Scandinavia from a immediate geographic standpoint. Are there, as a Scandinavian, are these related countries? They are part of Scandinavia, so... Okay, I retract that comment. Um, uh, so in that way, they are related. And from a lingu- linguistics perspective, um, I probably should know that. I don't know that. There is, I do know that they do speak, um, they have a Scandinavian language, which is not an official language, that they use for tourism. And so if you're from Scandinavia and you come visit, Uh some of them, not everyone, will speak the Scandinavian language, which is not the official word or what it's called. I'm calling it that. So anyone from Iceland listening to this might be like, that's totally inaccurate. (laughs) (laughs) But they do have a version and being Swedish, it's easy to understand. And being from Norway, it's fairly easy to understand as well. Uh, And Denmark where the Danish, Norwegian and Swedish languages are quite similar. Finnish, on the other hand, which is also part of Scandinavia, half of Finland speaks Swedish and the other half uh, speaks Finnish, which has pretty much no relation uh, from a linguistics perspective. To anything? Does that... Uh, To Russian. Oh, wow. I believe. Someone's going to fact check this and be like, "Uh uh-oh. We get to screen our comments that come in so we can just... Okay, great. Be very (laughs) discreet in which ones we let through. So you you grew up with a a father who owned a very international business. You grew up in Sweden, I believe believe and then tell me about basically the question is tell me about your upbringing i mean were you bouncing around between the states and throughout europe or were you largely european based yeah so both both my parents are swedish um born and raised there 
then right before I was born, we moved, my parents moved to Switzerland. So I was actually born in Switzerland, gotcha. uh, in Lucerne, which is uh, part of the German-speaking part of uh, Switzerland. Then around five, we moved to California. That was mainly based um, off of personal preference from my parents rather than a business decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, I think, mainly my mother who thought it could be fun. And so my, obviously my father tagged along. We lived there for about four years, moved to uh, Massachusetts after that, lived there for about five years. How much of that was dictated by your mother? Which uh, is to say, Massachusetts and California do not share a lot in the... In the many things. That's right. <laughs> Besides now, Cal- that they touch oceans. California was, was my mother. <laughs> okay. Uh, Massachusetts was um, business because it became too difficult from the time difference to work with Europe from California. Makes sense. Um, and what, at what point were those in your timeline of life? So I was five when we moved to California, about nine when we moved to Massachusetts. And then when I was 14, uh, we moved, I say, back to Sweden, but actually to Sweden for the first time for me. Mm-hmm. Now, we'd always gone back to Sweden for summer break. Um, so I knew Sweden. We spoke Swedish at home. So Swedish was my first language. Uh-huh. Um but then when I was 14, I finished a junior high and high school there. And then when I started college, I went back to California because I had fond memories of being there. Nice. I went there for two years, um, studied physical education, among other things, or majored in that. Then decided to go into engineering. Where I was, didn't have an engineering school. So I transferred uh, and got zero of my credits transferred. <laughs> and so restarted engineering school in Stockholm. Okay. Uh, did a master's there. Went back and forth if I should get a PhD, if I want to go into academia or not. Um, Decided not to move to Switzerland to work with EF. Did that for six months. And I had applied, though, to Cambridge in the UK for their PhD program at their business school, uh, not thinking I'd get in. But then I got a letter that I had gotten in. And so then um, I decided, well, if I got in at Cambridge, I can't say no. So then rethought the PhD and... Moved to Cambridge and uh, spent five years there. Uh, Cambridge, getting a PhD in engineering. In management science at the okay. business school, which is uh, pretty much numerical models, how to solve management decisions in different forms and ways. And my thesis was specifically on networks, huh. uh, from postal networks to airline networks, um, and how do you optimize them and build them at minimum cost based on different service level guarantees you want to have for your customers. From a fairly analytical standpoint, correct? I mean, yes. Because that, that sounds a high-level math as lots opposed math. to a high-level philosophy. Yes, lots of math, uh, lots of applied math, uh, some computer programming, um, but a lot of math modeling pretty Holy much. Holy cow. I was a math major right up to the point two-thirds of my way through my, my collegiate schooling when my GPA was falling precipitously and, and the theoretical levels of math that come later on were, were difficult for me. So then I, I changed to econ and found it that I could graduate with a oh, cool. above subpar yep. GPA. Um, and then how about you were a cyclist. I would define you as a cyclist. How, when does cycling enter your, your foray? Do you grow up on a bike or is that something a more recent interest? No, I didn't grow up on a bike. I mean, I think I biked about average as any kid bikes. You bike mm-hmm. a little bit around your town and to and from your friends' houses. Uh, I was very much into sports growing up and I did pretty much any sport I could 
uh, get into, uh, which made me a potential great PE teacher because I spent a lot of times doing a lot of different sports, which made me sort of, you know, master of none, but decent at all. Uh, then I started getting a lot of knee problems hmm. around uh, 18, 19 years old. I struggled with that for years. And that's actually when I started cycling because it was something I could do. Started mountain biking, very, you know, recreational level. Did some mountain bike marathons uh, and then stopped with that. Got into running because my knees started getting better. And I started doing some triathlons, some very short uh, adventure races, like half day adventure racing stuff. Wow. Um, did that for a while. Solo uh, or team? Team based. Yep. Um, but again, very, very recreational. It was sort of, you know, you found something, you went out and you were out there for six hours with a few friends and you ran and you kayaked and you biked a little bit. Yep. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and then uh, when I was at Cambridge, I joined the cycling team. Just did that for a year though. Uh, but kept biking a little bit on my own, went on and off with triathlons for a while. Um, and then got really into running much more for a while and sort of only did running for a while. And then I got back into cycling maybe four or five years ago, uh, when I decided it was time to do an Ironman triathlon cause I hadn't done that yet. I'd done a lot of shorter ones uh, and a couple of halves. And so started training for that. And then I got back into mountain biking. And, Which one did you end up doing? Uh, the one in Nice in France. Oh, lovely. That was great. It was a beautiful course. Yeah, it was beautiful. No and kidding. we had great weather. Imagine challenging, unless it was entirely along the coast. Well, the run was entirely along. The run was flat. It was just back and forth along the coast. Uh -huh. And the bike was hilly. It was up in the mountains. Yeah. But beautiful. Right very, on. Very, very beautiful. You got to keep it challenging. Yep. All right. Yep. And so you're saying you got a little bit into mountain biking? Yeah, Lodded I got back biking? into mountain biking and then gravel riding is completely new for me. Um, and and the Dirty Kansas 50 Mile was the first gravel race I've ever done. I did uh -huh. it on my mountain bike. Nice. Um, and then tomorrow will be my first sort of gravel race on a gravel bike. Excellent. We will we'll certainly get into the Icelandic tones that we were talking about earlier and the race that we're doing tomorrow um, a little bit later in this conversation. So EF Education First has been described to me as the... Biggest company they've never heard of. Yes. I've heard that a lot. You've worked in many facets of the company. You are you are currently the CEO of North America of EF Education First. Yep. Did I say that correctly? Yep. Okay. We it's it's we call it EF, but then no one knows what EF is, so then we say it's education first. I see. But then we actually the name is actually it goes by EF rather than education first. Gotcha. Good, good descriptions. I should point out that Dr. Kevin Sprouse was the first person who I interviewed here on King of the Ride from within the slipstream cycling umbrella, that facet of the team. And he was the first to correct me and tell me that it was, at that point, EF Education First Powered by Cannondale. And hats off to him for now. That's certainly in my vernacular to say EF yep. Education First. Great. So with that long-winded intro, how do you define EF? education first, besides the biggest company you've never heard of? Okay. So I think EF, EF does really what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to learn something new and something different about a different culture or different nationality, different nationalities, um, and sort of see the world from someone else's perspective. And we believe that in in that way, people grow a lot more. And so if you can go and learn the way other people see the world and see it from their eyes, even if it's just for a day, mm -hmm. 
that opens up your mind to new possibilities and new ways of looking at things when you're back home. And then we offer different platforms to sort of uh, get that. And so we do it through language schools and language education and language travel. We do it through uh, educational travel, which is tours. We do it through cultural exchange programs. We also do it through more uh, traditional academic programs where we make sure a lot of the students come from all over the world and they study together and sort of you integrate the cultural uh, piece that way. Are any of those the outside the theoretical, you know, foundational level of, okay, we're going to, we're going to learn culture and language period. Are any one of those silos, the largest aspect or the, or, or the vast majority of the company? Is it, is it international student travel for high schoolers? Is it? Yeah. So yeah, very broadly speaking, you can, you can divide it up in four parts and you say one part there are four parts that are about equal in size. So one, one fourth um, is local language schools. So people not traveling to learn a new language, but they're staying local uh, or even online. Then one, one fourth is language travel. So you're actually traveling to the destination to uh, study the language that is spoken at that country. <clears throat> and so you combine you're combining classroom teaching and then real world application as you're staying and living there, either with a host family or, or at the school. Uh, and then one quarter is our tours program, which is our main programs in the, for the North American market. And this is bringing students uh, and their teachers or adults or college kids uh, or college students. Um, and sometimes with a professor, sometimes on their own, it's different programs abroad for one to two week trips to see something new and something different. And then one quarter is a little bit all our other programs, which are cultural exchange programs and our high school programs, um, our boarding schools and so forth. Very cool. Two anecdotes related to this. One, I have a very good friend who recently went with his family. He's of fatherly age and he took his two kids to India and I know they did it through an EF program. The other anecdote is driving here, the two miles between our current uh, event registration site and our hotel two miles away, we saw not one but two tour buses go by, I'll call them tour bus, with an EF placard in the front. It was not a big branded EF tour bus nor team bus, but it was the kind of thing that I think if I wasn't a fan of cycling and I didn't have a career in cycling, I would see, I would not absorb, I would assume it's a tour bus. My friend would go to India and tell me that he went to India and studied, uh, you know, is involved in the culture, but he wouldn't have mentioned the company so specifically and so excitedly were it not for his love for cycling. So how, how do you explain why a company is so big, I believe, I want to say 23-ish thousand employees, how does it remain under the radar? Why is, why, you know, I don't know how many employees work at GE. Yeah. I didn't make a purposely pick another company with two names, <laughs> uh, two letters. Everybody knows GE. Everybody knows Samsung. Everybody knows AT&T. Why is EF, well, considerably, probably smaller number of employees, why is it still so, not as well known? My guess is EF grew up. Um, through being very successful, through building relationships directly with a customer rather than big marketing. And uh, PR and big marketing is, is fairly foreign to EF. We don't really, we've never really done it at, at larger scales and we're pretty bad at it. 
but we're very good at talking to and listening to customers. But, you know, the good thing with that is the customer gets a more one-on-one relationship feel. The bad side with it is a lot of our customers just think that EF is the one program they're engaging with when actually we offer so many different types of programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is one of the one of the things we're also trying to solve and one of the reasons we got into professional cycling as well. Um, but I, I'd say that's probably the short version and we're global. And so even if we have a lot of staff and a lot of customers, it's not a lot of staff and a lot of customers in one country. It's spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably contributing to it as well. How... How many employees do you suppose are U.S. based? Um, we have a couple thousand U.S. based, um, and if you include all of our teachers, um, if you take full-time staff and our teachers, we're about fifty, fifty-five thousand globally. And as you described it as very customer-based and having a great relationship with the customer, as opposed to going purely after a marketing side, do, do, does the customer end up acting as your? Ambassador, yeah, in their immediate circle. I mean, it sounds like it's well, a upbeat, benevolent, fun company. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's both the customer. Um, you know, we have a lot of repeat customers. Depending on the programs, on our language programs, they don't repeat as much because they they take it and they learn the language until they feel they know it. You know, to a significantly good level. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but our other products, they often repeat many times. Uh, and, and so we hope that they become ambassadors in their towns, and a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. But a lot of our, our staff as well, because they build that relationship one-on-one with uh, the customers they work with as well, uh, become very emotionally sort of attached to it because, yes, they, they like, hopefully they like EF um, because they're colleagues, but also because of the customers that they get to know. Yeah. I was lucky enough to receive an invitation by our mutual friend Frank, yep. an employee of EF, um, to come down and visit the Boston office. And this was, uh, I want to say July 11th, so we're probably, call it a week and a half into the 2019 Tour de France. Yep. And the purpose of the day was to go for a ride in the morning up and down the Charles with some, some EF employees and then take in a tour day. And so the, you know, the big screen's up, there were mimosas, there were... Uh, what do you call them? The French macaron? Yep. I probably just butchered that. Do not speak any French. Um, and then I, I commentated the tour. I, I, I you know, brought it down to a, a very reasonable level of what's happening. What's a breakaway? What is a breakaway? Why are there cars on course? Yada, yada, yada. What struck me was the level of enthusiasm that EF employees have. That is a the most fun, certainly a young uh, demographic who works there, but it, not purely because they get to go watch TV in the middle of their workday, but <laughs> I mean, it was just so excited, and every time I had the mic in my hand, they were, they were looking at me with just ravenous eyes, like they were engaged and curious and asked tons of great follow-up questions. What's the, what's the secret sauce to having such engaged employees and, and, and another side note, I think what, what the company's done a really good job with as it relates to the cycling team Anytime a pink EF jersey was on TV, they cheered. And That's awesome. Certainly, yeah. it could be because they're excited, and Rigo is a wonderful human being. But they, 
I've heard this time and again that that EF employees in Boston all over the world feel part of that team. It's not a team that we support, but that is us. That is our team. How on earth do you weave that into the culture? Because uh, good job. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm glad to hear that. Um, and it's, I don't know. I don't know how you weave it in. It, it needs it needs to happen a little bit organically. And then the question is, how do you make it organic, organically happen? Because if you force it, then it's false. And then people don't engage. And in the end, it comes down to who you hire. And one thing we're very strict on is hiring people who believe in what EF does and get exci- genuinely excited about the different things we, we do within the organization instead of purely looking for skill. Of course, you have to have skill and we look for skill as well and potential and all of that. Um, But we hire people when we think they're great people and we don't necessarily hire people into roles. So it's not, okay, we have role X open. We need to find someone that has skill X and put them in that role. We're constantly interviewing people and if we find someone we love and we don't have a role open, we'll hire them anyway. And then eventually we'll find something for them. And there's so many things going on that there's no lack of projects that you can give someone for a few months mm-hmm. until a proper role opens up that they're excited about and that we're excited about. But when you do have open roles, you don't just look for that they can do skill X. You look for that they're actually passionate about what EF does and what we stand for. And, and then you try to bring as many different perspectives and backgrounds into the organization, but what they all have in common is the passion for, for travel, for cultural exchange, for language, uh, and so forth. And that, that sort of brings everyone together. Makes sense. And I've also heard this trickle down the grapevine. So I could be completely off base. You've great incentives for, for your employees to, so that they remain impassioned and excited to show up for work. Does everybody get a trip? They get one paid for everyone, everyone that works. So what we believe is it depends on where you work. Okay. If whatever product you're working with, you should experience the product. And so most of our products have to do with travel and cultural exchange and language travel. Uh You get to go on one of our programs once a year because otherwise you don't really know what you're doing. Right. Um, and so that. we have really fun, exciting programs that involve a lot of travel. So yeah, everyone gets to travel uh, and people love that. And it's fun and it's great. And they come back, people come back with so much more knowledge when they've been on one of their programs and they talk about it to customers in a completely new and different way before they've gone on a single one. Practice what you preach. That's right. I suppose that makes a lot more sense than saying, here's your textbook on Iceland's. That's learn, right. go experience it, go learn it. Um, at what point does does the sport of cycling enter the radar of EF, EF corporate? Um, it entered, you, uh, cycling didn't really enter, it didn't enter completely until just a couple of years ago. It's been something we've thought about along with a lot of other sports and it has to do with now, over 20 years ago, we sponsored the Whitbread Around the World sailing race, which later became the Volvo Ocean Race. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time we did a big sponsorship of a sporting event. It was a two-year sponsorship, and we had two boats. The first year was building the boats, hiring the crew, 
uh, and then we raced for one year. And that was a huge success for us internally. It brought the company globally together, cheering for these two boats that we had. Um, one was an all-female crew and one was an all-male crew. Um, and it, it created real, real sort of power within the organization, especially for the offices that are a little bit more isolated and only have a few people uh, in the office. And it gave something for them to look to and feel more part of the large organization. And they got to go to, uh, when, this, when the boats came into port, they got to go there. Mm -hmm. And it gave us a lot of good PR in a fun way as well. And so we've been talking about if we ever should do something like that, that again and what sports would make sense. And of course, cycling was one of them that would come up now and then. But it wasn't until actually a couple of years ago when uh, someone on, uh, on our team mentioned that Slipstream was about to fold mm -hmm. and said, hey, you know, should we, should we consider coming in and, and doing something with professional cycling? And you know, first reaction was no, we're not going to do that. Uh, but then we decided, well, let's look at it. And then we're like, actually, maybe it could make sense. Um, and so then we decided to have a call with JV and we did. And then sort of things went from there. Did you, was that conversation on the table before the team was um, in its 11th hour? No. That was, it was sort of a pre-existing sponsorship question posed. It was, it was literally, literally it was, well, timing was pretty good for us. Uh -huh. I think, you know, JV had given, given the riders two weeks notice. Okay. Yep. He'd said, if, it, if I can't find a sponsor within two weeks, we're folding. Mm -hmm. We found this out. So when we heard that, gotcha. that's when we called them. So we hadn't thought about it until then, nor heard about it until after that. Uh, and, but timing for us was pretty well because right when we heard about this, me and my oldest brother, who also works in the organization, had been talking about if we should try to do a global PR campaign to try to become a little bit more known. Because mm -hmm. as you said, we're not very well known. Details. Yeah, but, uh, but what we'd found is there's no really good global PR companies that can help you. Some of them say they are, but they're actually really good in some countries, not all countries. And mm -hmm. we're global, so we want to be everywhere. And it's very expensive. And so when, when cycling sort of became more, more sort of here's actually something that we could do, we started looking at it and we noticed that here's, here's this group of people from all these different countries and nationalities and backgrounds coming together, working together through language barriers and difficulties, through cultural um, barriers and cultural uh, differences to do something pretty extraordinary and pretty incredible. And they do it on a world stage and have fans that are from all over the world with different nationalities and different backgrounds rooting for the same team. And it sort of hit us that this is what we're trying to do at EF, but in a micro scale. Mm -hmm. And can we use this as the example of what we're trying to stand for and also use this as a vehicle to try to show the world who EF is uh, while also getting back to the Whitbread days, getting staff really excited about something that unites us globally. 
And the more we looked at it, the more we're like, actually, we should just do this. And so, you know, everything went super quick because the riders were about to go to other teams. And so we had to like close this within, I think we had a week and a half from first conversation <laughs> with JV to get something signed. And so, you know, it was, it was, I think, a lot of stress on everyone's side to try to figure this out. And it turned out that, you know, JV was asking us to be a sponsor and we didn't really want to be a sponsor because if we want to do it, we want to go all in. And so then we want to take over the team. And so we said, we'll do it if you become an employee of ours. Um, and then we run the team. And he said, yes. So here we are. It's like, this is a rock and this is a hard place. <laughs> it sounds like a very good solution. Um, I think it's safe to say that most people who are fans of the sport would agree that cycling sponsorship on its face or on the 40,000-foot level has a sustainability issue. I think everybody has an opinion or an idea or, or a concept of one thing that might attribute to why there's there are sustainability issues in 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 the longevity of teams and sponsorships in general. For example, the title naming rights and jerseys. If you go to, for an example, uh, an FC Barcelona soccer football match, the jerseys look the same for a long time. So whether you're wearing an antiquated jersey or one far in the future, you know that you are tried and true fan of that team. Cycling jerseys change often. They might change in the middle of the race. They might change, or not in the middle of the race, but in the middle of a season. Yeah. And certainly, yeah, they can change. There's so many stories within the sport of cycling, a leader's jersey, a young rider's jersey, so on and so forth. How do you see the sustainability of sponsorship? Knowing that you guys didn't say, okay, we're going to pony up some money and sponsor the team. We are going to own this team. Yep. What yep. is, do you see a viable solution? Is it, is it this route to own teams, to have the sponsor own a team and, and give, give teams direction? Yeah, I think... You know, one of the, what we saw, and, and I think JV and Doug, who was the owner of the team before we came in, they did a great job with what they had. Um, but they were running a race team, which is awesome. But for them to run a race team, they need sponsors. But as a sponsor, you, all sponsors want something different. So, you know, for us, we wanted to use the team to show the world that people from different backgrounds can come together and do great things. And that's what we do at EF as well through our programs, a little bit at least. But other sponsors want other things. But in the end, it's brand awareness. And if you're, if you're running the team to win races, which you're supposed to because it also gives good PR you do it not thinking of the marketing of the sponsors necessarily. You do it so they don't leave and get pissed off. <laughs> but it's not your first goal. Your first goal is to win races. And for us, yeah, we want to win races. It's great and it's fun and it gives us more exposure. But really, we want to tell the human story. And so if we don't win races, that's okay as long as we're telling the human story. And so if we were just a sponsor, yeah, we can do our branding on our own and our marketing on our own, but we can't do it in necessarily the way we'd like to do it. And instead of having to fight with JV and Doug over what we should or shouldn't do as a sponsor, we felt if we just can run the team, we can do what we want to do. 
and JB wanted to stay on board, which is great, and we wanted him to stay on board so he can focus on winning and we can focus on telling the human story, if that makes sense. That makes a great deal of sense. So purchasing, let's call it Slipstream for the point of separation, purchasing Slipstream, purchasing the operation that JV ran certainly allows you to fulfill the, the, the purpose of EF in this regard. Do you, how do you see that among the entire pro peloton? Which is to say, and I mean, be perfectly frank and say, you know, shoot, the other, the rest of the pro peloton has, has problems. I mean, if you're quick step and you're selling flooring, I, I don't think necessarily the solution for the, the long lasting existence of the team, the operation that is quick step is to sell flooring in perpetuity. I mean, yeah. I think, I think it's a really unique scenario in that the, the team can be owned by, let's call it the title sponsor. Yeah. Um, and it's fulfilling all the needs that you guys have. I wonder how to allow this to emanate to the rest of the pro peloton. Do you see, do you see this as a kind of thing that other teams, yeah. other sponsors can, can, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's a couple of, there's a few different takes on it without trying to, I don't want to get too political down. I UCI love politics and all of that. So I'm going to stay I away like from Swedish it. politics. Let's go <laughs> deep into Swedish politics. But I think, you know, professional cycling teams as companies aren't worth anything. So you can't sell it to make a lot of money. So if right. you win, mm -hmm. that doesn't bring up the worth of the team. Mm -hmm. When a lot of other sports, it does. Football, so, baseball, basketball, hockey. Yeah. So I think that's one of the issues. Okay. And so as a sponsor, you know, or potential co-owner, if you do well, you get branding, but you don't, you can't later sell your shares and get a bunch of money. And so that's one issue. But then if you take, you know, flooring, the reason you do that is because you're getting, you're getting more sales through it. It's advertising dollars. It's advertising it's marketing dollars. dollars. That's yeah. right. And, and if you, if you're a company that sells floor, flooring in a Home Depot type of store, then you, you need your customer to recognize your name. And so maybe they saw it on TV and, you know, cycling is Tour de France is the third most watched sporting event in the world after the Olympics and uh, the World Cup. And so it gets a lot of eyes on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as long as those marketing dollars are paying for themselves, then sponsors will be happy. But for us, I think it was slightly different because we didn't, we're not assuming that we're putting all this money and running the operations of the team, that that's going to give us like for like sales. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we can't really do an ROI analysis on it, but what we can do is share that story of what we believe in and what we think, um, sort of EF stands for by using the cycling team. If we do the marketing, right. Which, you know, first year was learning this. We're now in year two, we're getting a little bit better and hopefully year three will get even better. And we mm -hmm. we're sort of learning as we go. And I, uh, I think a funny comment was that professional cycling is, uh, I say it often, it's professional blue collar sport in that, yes, you receive real money as a, as a bike racer, but it's pennies compared to call it professional sports elsewhere, football, baseball, basketball, hockey. The, the dollars are just less in the sport of cycling than elsewhere. 
Um, and, and I think of that in the terms of title sponsor advertising. So it seems to me that the dollars put in to a cycling team do have tremendous. It's hard to measure the ROI, but call it a $5 million sponsorship. It's going to give you a fairly prominent place on that jersey, and that jersey is going to be seen a lot during the Tour de France and yeah. spoken about. I mean, sure, if you're in the breakaway, so on and so forth. You know, it's not advertising at a at a football match, at a soccer match. It's yeah. it's so. Why do you think there still exists such an advertising problem? And sponsors say, you know what, we're out. We don't need this anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, what I'm trying to say is, I feel like sponsoring cycling is cheap. Yeah. Why is it still continue to run into a, to issues? It it is it is actually I agree with you. It is cheap when you look at um, if you were to hire a PR firm. How about a sailboat race or sponsoring sailboat teams? Yeah. Yeah. Is it cheap compared to that? You know, they, the whip bread was before my time, but considering that we built two boats, uh, you know, it was probably pretty expensive. I I think sails alone cost but, a lot of money, let alone a big carbon boat. But, you know, you do a 30-second video during the Super Bowl, that's more expensive. That's what I mean. And that's a one time, and, yeah, you get a lot of eyeballs on it, but sponsoring a cycling team, you get year-round access at a global scale. So I think if you're if you're a North American-based company trying to make it into Europe, huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Um, Europe, if you're, try- if you're any company trying to get into Europe, it's a huge opportunity. But also... As cycling continues to get bigger and bigger in the U.S., um, getting into the U.S. is great as well. And so I think to get back to your question, why, why do people struggle with it, is it's hard to prove that if you put X dollars in, you're going to make Y sales because it's brand awareness rather than pay-per-click. Because... Mm-hmm. You know, right now, everything that's digital, you can see customers click here, click there, click there, then they purchase. And you know exactly what you spent for them to purchase and you can optimize. We're sponsoring a cycling team. So, okay, I'm putting, say, $5 million in. How am I now measuring how many of those eyeballs actually bought my product or my services? And you can't really do that. And so people, some people have figured out that it's totally worth it and they keep doing it. And some people may lose a lot by stopping doing it. And for others, maybe their follow-up after a bike event isn't good enough. And so they're actually not getting the the bang for the buck. So we're here in Iceland. Nice drizzly day. It was beautiful yesterday, but drizzle now. We're here for the Rift gravel event, your first gravel race. Outside of 50 miles, your other gravel race you've done. You've talked about the... The, the human aspect that you want to bring to uh, to the attention of, of the team and of EF and, and yeah. let that be the awareness. Presumably, that was a direction that you guys said to call it Slipstream. We'd like to do more events. Is that, is That's that right. accurate? So, I mean, yeah, why why gravel? Why Iceland? Why Dirty Kanza? Yeah, I why? think professional cycling has a huge fan base. But there's also lots of people that love cycling, love getting out on a bike that don't necessarily follow professional cycling. And so we wanted to do this alternative calendar, which is, hey, why don't we do non-professional races and just go there? And we can bring some of the team riders. We can bring some of the staff. Um, 
you know, this one I'm just going on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's getting out there and and meeting people and seeing people and enjoying different parts of the world and uh, doing that on a bike is a great way to see the world. Perfect answer. I, I, I'm sort of curious why it hasn't happened before. And maybe the answer is because gravel hasn't been this hip before gravel. You know, I talk about the industry getting behind it more than anything. I love how we are currently right next to your Cannondale Topstone. The clearance on the bike. Fantastic bike. I don't know if you noticed. While we were sitting here before, someone came over and snapped a snapped a photo of the bike. Not the strange interview going on next to it. But, I mean, talking about purely the hardware, the number of tire options, the number of gear ratio options, the, the width of handlebars, um, the hardware has made riding gravel much more fun. Yeah. So... You know, that's that I think is such a huge reason why more and more people are getting into gravel. But you hit it on this, the head to say it's, it is the humanizing aspect that allows people that are not just fans of the sport, but people who are fans and ride a bike to go ride a bike with Alex House, U.S. national champion. You know, the guys who are TJ coming back from the Tour de France, like he might line up at a gravel race. In fact, TJ, I hope you're listening right now. Come race Leadville in two weeks. Um, yeah, I just love, I love gravel. Are you racing Leadville? I am racing Leadville. Cool. Are you going to be there? I am going to be there, yeah. Fantastic. Be there, be at SBT. Hopefully we can get you on the King Challenge again back up in New Hampshire in the fall. Cool. Um, how do you fit it in? You are, I believe you're a father? Yep. Husband? Yep. Business owner? Yep. CEO of, of you know, therefore in charge of, you know, a lot of people who work at, at, at EF. How do you find balance? How do you find the ability to fit it in? How do you find you know the ability to fit it in to come to Iceland yeah. real quick? Well, you're a very peaceful guy. Where's your demeanor come from? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. Born this way? No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, you know I have I have a philosophy which which works for me, and I think everyone needs to find their own way how to how to find balance. One, I'm not sure I believe in balance per se. But that, that's a separate topic, which we can tackle either now or later um, or some other day. But that's episode two. That's episode two. Um, but I believe that when you work, you work hard and you work efficiently. Like you, I can go to the office and I can work all day and not get anything done. Or I can go to the office and really focus what I need to get done that day and get a lot done. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, there's a lot of CEOs for global organizations that work 70, 80, 90 hour weeks, 100 hour weeks. Um, And, you know, I I work a lot more than a 40 hour week, but I don't work anywhere close to a 100 hour week. But that that's because, you know, I I try to I try to show up and get get my stuff done. And then, you know, what same thing with the kids, like when you're with the kids, don't be looking at your iPhone like focus on the kids, play with the kids, get on the floor, get some quality time in. Mm -hmm. And it's about focusing on whatever it is you're doing. And so when I'm training, I'm focusing on my training and try to make a purpose of, okay, I got an hour. Let's make the most of this hour. And, you know, sometimes that's a recovery, easy ride. Sometimes it's intervals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on the weekends, if I can get one, you know, three hour ride in or four hour ride in during the weekend, I get up early in the morning and I do that. And then I get over a day and a half uh, with the kids to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's about not wasting precious moments 
And then, you know, to be able to do that, you also have to get sleep. And I will admit that sleep, I struggle with sleep sometimes. And that will affect both my work and my training and my time with the family. Um, But if you can and you can focus, then you don't need, at least for me, like I don't need to sit three hours in front of the TV um, or sit and, and watch YouTube for two hours every day <laughs> and so forth. Yes. Um, instead, you know, you figure out what you want to do this day and, and you do it. That's awesome. I can agree with those sentiments. Uh, do you have a cycling coach? I do not have a cycling coach. JV gave me some tips. I would say that's, you know, I, I try, I try to listen to his tips. I'm not able to do his, um, his scheduled training is formalized as I think he tells me to do it. <laughs> but, you know, he tells me to do very specific intervals and I sort uh-huh. of do a Fort Lake type of intervals because a lot of my cycling is to and from work and there's red lights and cars and other commuters um, and so forth. So A good Bostonian commuter. Sprint, coast, dodge traffic. Yeah, riding with Charles, that is a fascinating little out and back. Yeah, it is. And a lot of people walking on their cell phones that you got to make... 90 degree turns in the middle of the bike path. It's Mm -hmm. always an interesting challenge. Well, that'll serve you well come mile uh, 50 to 60 when you're descending Columbine. Okay. Out there in in Leadville. You done Leadville before? I have not. This will be the first time. Okay. Well, also to practice, you should find a straw between now and the start line tomorrow and do the entire race tomorrow breathing out of a straw. (laughs) It is a ferocious animal. It was long enough ago. I did it in 2016 and it's been long enough that I've forgotten how terrible it is. Yeah. And It'll be probably mile four. Then I'm like, oh, right. It's like this, that was. this is exactly how it was. Well, it is only a matter of hours, approximately mm, 14 of them before we start racing. So I will I will wrap up unless you've got anything else. That's no, uh, been great. Thank you. I thank you very much. I wish you a great night of sleep. Thank you. You too. Um, and here's to a really fun day tomorrow. Awesome. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much, Eddie. Thanks. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Eddie very much for his time on the eve of a busy race, a busy trip to Iceland. I mean, wow, his second ever gravel race. His first ever 100 plus mile gravel race. Huge props goes out to him. I really enjoyed this sit down and I hope you gleaned something from it too. I want to thank The Feed once again for supporting this episode. Now think about it, folks. Everybody is different. And by that, I mean every body is different. Every person has a different height, different weight, different metabolism, and different nutritional needs. And that's why I recommend talking to the nutritional experts at thefeed.com. They're basically an online grocery store of sports nutrition and what I call real nutrition, real foods for real nutrition for real people on the go, just like you, just like me. In particular, head to thefeed.com slash king to save 15% on a box curated by yours truly and use the code KING10, K-I-N-G, 10, which stands for 10, of course. To save 10% on everything else storewide, you will be happy you did. That is all for today's episode, my friends. Until next time, please enjoy the ride. <laughs>